Well, it's hard to believe that we are working our way through December. This is going to be the first Christmas for our family in three years. We've had all seven of our kids together. Even our kids that are missionaries in Asia are are coming back. We're going to have some grandkids. There's going to be, it's just going to be wonderful. Rhonda and I can't wait. And for those of you that are in blended families like we are, it's hard to believe that Ron and I have now been at this for seven years. And if you're in a blended family, you know it's not easy. I mean, you got these uh, lives and traditions and customs and kids that you're all merging into one a highway. Not an easy uh, assignment. But, but I want to say to you, by God's grace, it's really been working for us. And we look forward to what we hope may be one of our best Christmases ever. Can't wait to have the kids together. I hope you guys just have a wonderful Christ-centered Christmas this year. Now, we are in a series on Christmas peace, a series we've entitled Peace on Earth. After all, Jesus Christ, the prophesied, promised Old Testament Prince of Peace, came to make peace, to establish peace with God by shedding his blood, dying in our place for our sins. It's what the table points to. It's what Christmas is ultimately all about. And so, not surprisingly, Jesus, during his earthly ministry, repeatedly talked about peace. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called uh, children of God. And over and over in a lot of different ways, Jesus talked about the peace he brings, about the peace that is available to us through him, about the peace on earth that he is ultimately going to bring. So last week when we kicked off this series, Lon talked about world peace, about how in this world so full of conflict, hate, and war, terrorism, and on and on, we can find peace. Now today I want to shift and talk about relational peace. I want to talk about what it means to be a a peacemaker in your relationships, to be an agent or an ambassador of peace in your families, in your friendships, in your uh, community or neighborhood or church relationships. Not an easy assignment in a sinful fallen world full of so much dysfunction and conflict. And so what I want to do is I want to look at one of my favorite passages on this subject in the New Testament. It's found in the little New Testament book called Colossians. It comes right after Philippians. So grab a Bible. There's Bibles in the racks in front of you. Colossians is uh, around, I want to say, 1,165 or, or, or something. And, and turn on your Bibles. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 and follow with me as we pick it up in verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, that would be the church, you were called to peace. 
Now, what I want to do this morning with this passage I just read, three things. I want to look at the who, I want to look at the how, and then the what. The who Paul is speaking to, uh, the how we become peacemakers, and what peacemaking looks like. So let's start with the who. Who is Paul speaking to? Well, the answer is right on the surface. Paul is speaking to the church at Colossae. He's speaking to Christians. Now, that raises a couple of questions. And the first question, it's an important question, is what is a Christian according to the New Testament? Well, the answer is a Christian isn't someone who is better than others. I know a lot of Christians that are worse Now, there aren't any in this service, but I've met a few. So a Christian isn't someone who is better. A Christian is someone who admits that they are broken, self-absorbed, sinful before God. And who then, after admitting that, turns to Jesus who died in our place for our sin, and who offers us forgiveness and righteousness and and, and eternal life. A a life we uh, don't deserve. And then finally, a a Christian is someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit in order to live a life for God that we could not possibly live on our own. So a person is someone who admits, someone who turns, and someone who is indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. Now that raises a second question, and the question is, why in the world does that matter? Well, it matters for one main reason. You see, the only thing you contribute to your salvation, if you know Jesus Christ, is the sin that makes it necessary, okay? And the only, uh, frankly, uh, the, the only way you and I can uh, live the Christian life, uh, be people who are compassionate and kind and, and humble and, and gentle and patient, as Paul talks about here, is by the power of the Holy Spirit. We cannot, we cannot live the Christian life on our own. God never intended us to. He gave us the Spirit. So grace pays the bill. And the Spirit keeps the lights on. Grace paid the bill. Jesus died for your sins. Uh, The Spirit is the one that gives you the power to do what you cannot. You cannot do on your own. So coming to Christ, growing Christ, it's all grace. Now I say this uh, because just maybe you've never come to Christ. You've been looking in from the outside. You're trying to figure this out. And and if that's you, man, I want to say to you today, uh, come to Jesus and receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior by faith. Trust him as God's anointed peace offering. Embrace him. But I want you to understand that... The result of that or or, or wrapped up in that is that Jesus Christ never came to stifle your relationships. To constrict the blood flow. Jesus came to liberate you uh, so you would be an ambassador, not of conflict, but of compassion. 
so that you would be an ambassador of peace, so that you would be kind and humble and gentle and patient, that you would bear with one another and you would forgive and forgive and forgive. Paul keeps talking about forgiveness in this passage. And so this peace of Jesus Christ would govern your relationships, not conflict. You see, the ultimate relational paradigm, according to the New Testament, is not action and reaction, it's death and resurrection. The only way we can do relationships is by dying to ourselves and continually dying to ourselves and living in light of the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ in us. So what Paul is describing with all these wonderful terms and phrases here in Colossians chapter 3 is what the death and resurrected life of Jesus Christ looks like in the believer relative to relationships. It's what relational peace looks like. That's Colossians 3. And Paul is writing to Christians, and he assumes as Christians we understand we can't do this on, on our own. He, uh, he assumes we understand we have to lean into Jesus so that Jesus can do through us what is impossible. I mean, who in the world finds forgiveness easy or being patient? Uh, we don't do this. You don't conjure this up. This is something as you come to Christ, God does through you. That's why it's important we understand the who on, on the front end of this. Paul is speaking to, to Christians who understand that we cannot, we cannot pull this off. We must depend upon the spirit of the living God indwelling us. Now let me go to the how. The question here is, well, how do we live this way? And what I love about this passage and the reason we're in it today is because in this passage, embedded in this passage, is the key to becoming a peacemaker. The key to becoming a person that's characterized by compassion and kindness. Now look at verse 12. Look at the beginning of verse 12. Notice that the Apostle Paul does not begin by telling these first century believers what they should do. He begins by telling them what Jesus Christ has done. He begins by telling them who they are in Jesus Christ. And he says, you've been chosen. You're, you're dearly loved. Uh, you've been made holy. And notice it's not just loved, it's dearly loved. And man, if you circle, highlight in your Bible, uh, circle that word dearly. You're deeply, you're profoundly loved. Now, do you see what's going on? Do you get what Paul is doing, why he's beginning this way? In a, re, in a section that's all about relationships? Because Paul wants us to understand the key to relationships, our relationships with one another, is you and I as followers of Christ living in light of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, living in light of God's grace. He's chosen us. He's made us holy. Through the holiness of Jesus Christ. And we are all dearly loved. That's part of what it means to be saved, to be born again. That's part of the fruit of what God does when he draws us to himself. And Paul begins this section this way because he wants us to understand that the key to compassion, the key to patience, the key to forgiveness isn't something you and I do. It's something we believe. 
Specifically, it's believing in grace. God's grace. And as I've said over the last couple of months, what is grace? Grace is one-way love. If you understand that, it changes everything. It's one-way love in in that it has nothing to do with the merits of the person being loved. Uh, So think about this relative to us. We are chosen, Paul says. We are made holy. We are, are dearly loved. And here, this is God loving us, God giving us grace in spite of our sin, in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our rebellion and our dysfunction and our hate, our lack of patience. But God has done this because God is gracious. And so he's chosen us. He's made us holy. We are loved, deeply, profoundly loved. It's all grace, one-way love. And the apostle is saying, just as you have received that love, extend it to others. Your love is to be one-way love. But the only way you and I will do that is if we continually, if we consciously let the amazing grace God has shown us renew and restore our self-centered, selfish hearts. You see, another, uh, another way to say it is the reason we're not very compassionate, we're often not very kind and we're kind of surly, we're not very humble, we're arrogant, the reason we get impatient, the, the reason we find forgiveness so difficult is because we're not living in light of God's profound one-way love for us. We're huffing and puffing trying to do the Christian life on our own. And the way we avoid the snare of reducing this divine grace, this one-way love, to two-way love, what is two-way love? I'll love you because you love me. Or halfway love, what is halfway love? I'll love you if you love me. The way we avoid reducing one-way love to two-way or halfway love is by basking in the fact that if you know Jesus Christ, man, you are chosen. You've been made holy. That's forever. And you are deeply loved by none other than the God of the universe. And that's all one way. It has nothing to do with you. The greatest power, the greatest force in the universe is one way divine grace, love. And when you get that, and you live that, and you let that transform you, it liberates you to be compassionate, to forgive. The person you said, there is no way I'm going to forgive. So what I want you to understand is it's God's grace first in this passage. That's what comes first at the beginning of verse 12. And then Paul goes on to describe the garments of grace, as others have said. What grace looks like horizontally in our, in our relationships. But it starts with grace vertically, with God's grace. Do not forget that order. Because what the people around you want the most is one-way love. It's what your kids want. It's what your spouse wants. 
And it's right here in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. And you extend that. You extend that to others. You extend that to everyone. Because God has extended it to you in Jesus Christ. And you will never, you will never, ever be the same. Okay, let's keep moving. Uh, That's the who, the how. Now I want to go to the what, what this looks like. But I want to do it a little differently. Because typically what I would do at this point is um, dissect at least a little these verses. Look at some of these uh, uh, amazing terms. But instead, what I want to do is I want to take these terms as as a whole and then explore what this looks like in three areas. Marriage, parenting, and relationships in general. So let me start with marriage. Let me see if I can help you. Uh, with the profound concepts that are going on here. Someone has said the bond of marriage is always unraveling and always being renewed. Always unraveling, always being renewed. Uh, That's because we're either always withdrawing or always engaging or being unloving or, or, or loving. Now, according to the Bible, original sin hangs heavy over all phases and relationships in life. I happen to think it hangs, sin, original sin, hangs especially heavy over marriage. Because it's so important. So much is at stake. Now, sin, again, according to the Bible, is no respecter of gender, right? Right? I mean, we, are you guys with me? We get that? Uh, sin is no respecter of gender. Uh, so when, it, when it, it comes to marriage, <laughs> the husband and the wife are equally sinful in the, in, in the sight of God. Sin is evenly distributed is another way to say it. What makes marriage so hard then? is that it's doubly affected by sin. Both parties bring sin to the, to the table. And that, in the most intimate of all life's relationships. So now, let's take this uh, in the crazy, busy, uh, child-raising years, uh, when your children are, are, are younger. Because what can happen is though the husband loves his kids he can begin to resent his wife. Why? Well, she's always tired. She's always focused on the kids. Now, he may suppress it, uh, but he's frustrated emotionally. He's frustrated sexually. Now, the wife may sense something is wrong, but she barely has the time or, or, or the energy to respond. What she wants from her husband and legitimately so, is support and encouragement and and confidence. But he withdraws and plows all his energy into his career or into a hobby or into something more sinister. Now, time goes by, the months, maybe the years go by, and he blames her for focusing exclusively on the kids. She blames him 
for focusing exclusively on his work. He sees her as unavailable. She sees him as selfish. Now left unchecked, if this scenario was left unchecked, the children become the mother's first love and the father's first love becomes his job. Now, do you see how this passage applies? The key to marriage is to put to death halfway love. To put to death this notion, I'll love you if you respond to me the way I want you to. Or I'll I'll love you because you love me and if you stop, then all bets are off. Now, men and women, hear me. This is so counterintuitive. This is so countercultural. This is so impossible apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit of the living God. Again, we cannot do this on our own. And what the Apostle Paul is lining out for us here, it begins with a husband. Forgiving his wife for being a woman. And the wife forgiving her husband for being a man. The turkey? He's a man. Yeah, he's different. Grace kills competition in marriage. And grace kills halfway love. And you look around and all around us, marriages are falling apart. And and Paul is putting his finger on something here. One of the reasons they're falling apart is because they have been reduced to halfway love. So what is one way love? It's It's the husband saying, you know, in light of God's grace that I have received that I don't deserve in Jesus Christ, I'm going to put to death my feelings of rejection, my feelings of self-pity, my feelings of abandonment, my feelings of, of whatever, and I'm going to jump in and I'm going to be compassionate and I'm going to be patient. It's a wife saying, you know, in light of the grace I've received in, in, in Jesus Christ, I'm not going to ignore my husband's uh, emotional and physical needs anymore. That's, uh, that's just wrong. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Now, I, I wish he would do a better job with the kids or a better job with this or that, but frankly, that's his responsibility. My responsibility is one-way love. One-way love is what grace is. And marriages fail all the time because God's intended order of living in light of the one-way love we have received and then extending it to the person that matters the most in all of the universe to us gets reduced, gets reduced, gets whittled, gets poisoned, and what you have is something like a quarter halfway love. Boy, Men and women, don't do that. Now let me jump to parenting. And I want to say, I think part of our problem as Christian parents is that we fear grace. And so grace gets underemphasized in our, our parenting. 
Uh, we're all about obedience. I mean, we want our kids to obey us. We want our kids to o- o- obey God, rightfully so. We want them to love what God loves, to hate what God hates. And so our focus is on obedience. But the problem is if we stop there uh, and wrongly assume that the only way we're going to get Johnny, little Johnny's rebellious heart in line is by dumping on him more rules. And it ain't going to work. The reality is the only time rebellious people obey God is when they get surprised, blown away. They encounter the one-way love of God, the grace of God, the total unconditional acceptance of God, and the forgiveness of God. And when we comprehend that, then we want to obey God. And yet our problem as parents is that we reduce parenting to rules. So what I'm saying is this passage not only becomes a paradigm for marriage, it becomes a paradigm for parenting. We parent in light of the flow of this passage. We start with wanting our children to understand that their obedience, their compassion. Uh, Johnny, you need to be more compassionate with Susie. Uh, we, we help them understand that, uh, that the li- life isn't a function of their obedience or, or their compassion. It's a function of Jesus' obedience and Jesus' compassion. And so we help our kids understand that the spiritual life isn't ultimately something we do. It's living in light of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's precisely how Paul begins verse 12. So we resist the tendency as moms or or, or dads to dwell on the second half of this passage and to parent with, do this, don't do this, do that, don't do that. And what do we do instead? Man, we throw the spotlight on God's grace in Jesus Christ, on the wonder of what God has done. So when Johnny comes to you, uh, you say to Johnny, Johnny, I know that little Jack bugs you and drives you crazy. And I want you to know there are people in my life that bug me too. Uh, But what helps me is to realize that Jesus Christ died to save the very people that hated him. And I was one of them. And Jesus Christ died to save me. And when I understand that that grace, that that I was one of those on the outside and and Jesus rescued me, it it enables me to extend grace to people that bug me. Johnny, you can't do this on your own. But when you live in light of Jesus' grace, you can. And the Spirit will do that through you. So we teach our kids about grace. Now, now let me just um, counter this so you won't think um, I, I'm taking this too far and I'm suggesting something I'm not. I have a son, sophomore in college. Um, he's going to get a call from me, his dad, today because this begins final week. And I, um, I'm going to talk to him about the need to study and to bear down. Just because part of my role is to remind him of his responsibilities. I will talk to him about grace next week, but not today. (laughs) Now, let's say your kids grow up. The years go by. 
and they're adults. What does this passage say to us as moms and dads then? Well, what I want you to understand is this Colossians 3, uh, compassion, forgiveness, kindness, gentleness, uh, uh, patience, means that our New Testament model for parenting adult children is found in the parable of the prodigal son. And our model is the father of the prodigal. And what Paul is doing here in Colossians 3 is just lining out for us what that father's life was like. So like the father, when you have adult children, what this means is you keep the lights on. You keep the door open, even if God gives you a prodigal. And you always take the prodigal's calls. You see, your adult children will disappoint you. They will make decisions you don't disagree with. But you do not condemn your son-in-law because he works such long hours. You do not condemn your daughter-in-law because she's too permissive with her kids or because her house is a little messy or, 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 or whatever. And if your 36-year-old daughter calls you and says, Mom, Dad, my husband is leaving me, you do not say, I told you so. Grace never says, I told you so. Okay? Parents, just say okay. Okay? Okay. So you listen. You are the father in the parable of the prodigal son. And yes, you have principles and you've spent a lifetime teaching your children those, those principles, what God's word has to say. But you are accepting, you are welcoming, and you are eminently forgiving. Paul repeatedly emphasizes forgiveness in this passage. Now, some of our kids will abuse this grace. Some of our kids will ignore this grace. But I'll tell you what. They will never, ever look back in anger and say, I hate my mom. I hate my dad. Children of the law will say that, but not children of grace. You are a Colossians 3 parent. You live in light of the wonder of God's grace. And you extend that one-way love, regardless of the disappointment and the hurt. Now, obviously, there's some hedges there. I'm not going to take the time to go into that. What I want to do now is, is land this thing and talk about relationships beyond uh, the family. I want to talk about how you relate to your roommates or your coworkers or your, or your friends or your fellow church members. But, but I've got to elevate this. And what I mean is I've got to elevate the priority of those relationships. So I want you to understand that when Jesus came, one of the most radical things he did was completely change the definition of the family. You see, in Jesus' first century ancient Near Eastern world, the nuclear family and the extended family, in other words, the bloodlines were dominant, transcended all other relationships. That was Jesus' world. But when Jesus came along, what did Jesus do? Jesus left his nuclear family. 
and constructed a new family out of his followers. And that didn't go very well with his nuclear family. It didn't go very well with his mom and his brothers. So one day, according to Matthew chapter 12, they came to take Jesus back to the nuclear family. And look how Jesus responded. Let's get these words up there from Matthew 12. Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now that ought to make you a little uncomfortable. Because here what our Lord is doing is his universalizing family. And describing family as those who do his will. And the startling implication here is that our relationship with God and and the people of God is deeper, is more profound than our blood relationships. As a matter of fact, if you look at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11, the verse that precedes uh, verse 12, Paul says essentially the exact same thing. Because in verse 11 of Colossians chapter 3, Paul declares the end of the supremacy of the bond of race ethnicity, socioeconomic class, color, uh, blood, and culture, and he universalizes the bond we as believers have in Jesus Christ. Now, do not misunderstand. The work of Jesus Christ does not destroy the nuclear family. It's not what I'm saying. But hear me in this. It destroys the supremacy of it, the idolatry of it, the isolation of it. And it constructs a new, deeper, uh, eternal bond based on the blood of Jesus Christ. So what the work of Jesus Christ does, what this revolutionary teaching of Jesus picked up by Paul in Ephesians and here in Colossians, is it puts the nuclear family in its proper place. Its proper place. And what that means is it frees us as parents, as moms and dads from the tyranny of turning our children into absolutes and tethering all our significance and all our identity in in our kids. And it liberates us to give our children back to God and to love them As children made in the image of God. Now, why in the world do I mention this when I'm talking about relationships beyond the family, when I'm talking about your relationship with your roommate or a coworker or a neighbor? Because I want you to understand, as important as the family is, there is a deeper bond in the family of God. And those of you that are unmarried or divorced or widowed or childless are not second-class citizens destined to second-class relationships. I mean, look at the beginning again of verse 12. Your identity, if you're a divorcee or if you're, you're single or you're childless, your significance is not a function of your marital status. It's not a function of how many kids you have. You can have some of mine. It's a function of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And to the extent you understand this amazing grace 
that you are chosen, that you are holy, that you are dearly, deeply, profoundly loved, you will put on garments of grace. And you will extend compassion and kindness, humility and gentleness and patience, and you will bear with one another. And you will love other people. You will extend one-way love. Because you never ever define yourself by what you don't have. You define yourself by what Jesus Christ has done for you. And you know that each and every relationship God has given you is weighted, freighted with eternal significance. And it's grace. Let's pray.